Well, good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Rob. I've been here a number of times. I feel like <clears throat> I feel like I've kind of been a bystander on the sidelines over the months of your pastoral search. I pop in every couple of months, pitch in a little bit, get a snapshot of how things are going, and uh, it's just really encouraging. I always enjoy the shepherding here, the worship. Very happy for you all that you guys have found <clears throat> Pastor Jason, and things seem to be going well. Um, Jason didn't ask me to see the, uh, say this. But in 2006, uh, my wife and I moved out here under similar circumstances to take a, a ministry uh, position over at Biola while not yet having completed an academic degree at Southern Seminary. So um, you may have vastly more capacity than I do, and it wouldn't take much to surpass mine. So I'm not trying to impose my experience on Pastor Jason and Karis, but as you pray for them, I can say from my experience that while we were in that uh, transition period, I felt like we were serving two masters sometimes. And, and so you can imagine the, the, the strain, right, that, that, that would accrue to uh, Jason and to Karis, potentially as they're dealing with that, and the temptation even in, in both cases, in the ministry and with the academics at the seminary, to be handling the things of the word in a way that, that, that uh, you know, could at times, I just got to, got to, got to, got to check the box. I got to, Right, and so if you if you remember to pray for them, uh, even this week, in ways that even the busyness of academic work would feel like a treasure, right? Time in the Word. So I'm thankful for that. I'm also thankful as you guys go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10 uh, that our passage speaks to some of that uh, consideration for all of us. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be considering the uh, the passage of Jesus's visit to Martha and Mary's house, probably very familiar. To many of you, I know that you guys are preaching through the Gospel of Mark now. Good news is that this passage in Luke 10 does not appear in the Gospel of Mark, so we're not going to overlap, but I think thematically it'll, it'll be there. Um, so consider this as we, as, we, as we get underway this morning. Consider, uh, just in, in, in your own thinking for a moment, what you came in this morning feeling like you really needed. A little more sleep. A new job, a pay raise, improved health, restored relationships, maybe a friend. Maybe you feel like you've been looking for a friend for a long time and just haven't enjoyed that gift lately. Probably a lot of things come to mind. Our passage uh, in Luke chapter 10 all of those things, of course, are, are good things, right? They're valid things. They're valuable things to pray for. If you, if you uh, had a sense that some of those were among the most felt needs you had when you came in this morning. But our passage addresses, and I want to try to put it into one sentence, the great need that each of us has regardless of what the other needs may be that we feel we came in here uh, with this morning. A phrase right out of verse 42 uh, that we'll look at here in just a moment. We can summarize our passage like this. One thing is necessary. So that's the part that comes right out of verse 42. One thing is necessary. And then I'm going to kind of editorialize here to fill in the big idea. That thing is to receive from Jesus what he alone has to give and what we uniquely need from him. Of all, of all the needs that we came in this morning 
that may be legitimate needs that we feel like we have. One thing is necessary, our passage tells us this morning. And that is to receive from Jesus what he alone has to give and what we uniquely need from him. Let me read the passage for us. Uh, It begins in verse 38 down through verse 42. Uh, Then we'll pray and dive in in earnest. Luke 10, 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let me just pray for us briefly. Lord, we ask that you would help us to sit at your feet now and be riveted by the one thing necessary. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So just for a little bit of context, um, our passage, it's like, uh, it's like the meat in a sandwich. Okay, So the passage prior to this that we're really not talking about today is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're very familiar with that. The passage after ours, which we're also not preaching today, <clears throat> Jesus gives instruction on prayer and teaches his disciples how to pray, commonly known as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. So right in the middle between those two passages is our passage. And uh, to use the analogy of the sandwich, it's like the meat in the sandwich, or maybe a better analogy. It's like, think of it like this. Um, So so the the parable of the Good Samaritan is certainly about service in the the Lord's name. That's that's ministry to others. Uh, The Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer is is praying back to the Lord the things that he's nourished us with in his word. So so in between those two, if you want to change the metaphor, in between those two exhales is the inhale of drawing from Jesus what he provides to us in his word and that we uniquely need. So, so, so it's, it's the inhale, right? It's the inhale of his word, of his person, of his love, of his mercy that fuels the exhale of Christian service in Jesus' name. It fuels the exhale of praying the priorities that God gives us in his word back to him as a, right, as, as a renewed sense of our own priorities. Our priorities become conformed in prayer to the priorities that he helps us establish in his word as he gives them to us. So our passage, right, and we're going right, to zero back in here, our passage proceeds in three, three simple steps. And the climax is at the end. The first step basically sets the stage. We saw it in verses 38 and 39. Jesus arrives at Martha's house. Mary sits and listens. Martha is busily serving. Now, this is not the primary point, uh, but it does correct a misconception, and I think it probably fits pretty nicely with what you guys are doing in your uh, Sunday morning study on manhood and womanhood. So, um, in this, this passage where right, Mary is sitting and listening at Jesus' feet, this is taking place in a context, in a culture where women did not receive formal teaching from a rabbi. 
Jesus is more than just a rabbi. He's not less than a rabbi. And so this would have been very uncommon in that context or that culture. But Jesus is enthusiastically welcoming and receiving, even endorsing Mary's discipleship to sit at his feet and to receive his word. So one clear takeaway, right, is that all Christians are called to be lifelong disciples under the tutelage of Jesus and his word. There is a companion truth to this in scripture, that the offices of spiritual leadership in the church, like that of elder, are limited to otherwise qualified men. I know you guys are exploring that in your Sunday morning study. It would take a Sunday morning study to explore how all of these things fit together. But the emphasis in our passage for this moment is that women are disciples of Jesus also. They are students of the word. They participate in ministering the word and ministering according to the word. In fact, Mary here is modeling a beautiful posture of discipleship. Did you notice her sitting at the feet of Jesus in this passage? This is a characteristic, a posture that would have been common for students in the company of their rabbis at this time. But more than just sitting at Jesus' feet with her physical posture, what this reflects is a posture of her heart. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon, he, he, he did several sermons on this passage. Apparently, he liked it a lot. Uh, one of his sermons was called One Thing Needful, and he says that sitting at Jesus' feet in Mary's case indicates a readiness to believe what the Savior taught, to accept and to obey, to delight in the precepts which fell from his lips. He went on to say, I like this a lot, sitting at the feet of Jesus, so this is still a quotation, sitting at the feet of Jesus also signifies love. She knew how he had loved her, listen to this, and therefore each syllable was music to her soul. See, she's not, okay, end of quote. So she's not just receiving instruction from Jesus. She is receiving that. But in receiving his instruction, she's receiving him. Can you imagine how, how wrapped with attention we would be if Jesus were up here and we were all sitting, or furiously taking notes? And Friends, it's the same Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And so the question for us is, do we attend to his voice in scripture like Mary attended to his voice in person on that day? You can use your body postures, right? The point is not that you have to sit on the floor when you read the Bible. You can use your body postures to inform the postures of your heart, to be sure, things like kneeling in prayer, uh, even fasting, right? Using the body to inform the disciplines of love. But, but, but the point is, the point is that we need to go to the word with the same kind of receptivity, the same kind of eagerness to know and receive Jesus, even to recline on Jesus. So that, that kind of sets the stage. The second wave here in the progression of the story is uh, Martha's complaint, right? She's not happy about this. And the first part of Jesus's response to her. So we get that in verse 40 and 41. Let me reread that for us. Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. We'll pick up there again in a minute. So Martha's error 
was in thinking that Jesus came to her house mainly to be served a meal. Now, on the one hand, we can understand that, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a big deal culturally in that context to host and receive guests. And this isn't just any guest. This is, this is Jesus, right? What an honor. And so the impulse to get to work and to be busy about serving him, kind of understandable. I think, I think that's why Jesus is so gentle when he responds to her, Right? She is off base, but her motives are pure. See, the truth is, and and what Jesus is, is communicating to her and by extension to us, is that Jesus ultimately came, this is Mark 10, 45, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In that sense, the reason for Jesus' coming to us in the incarnation is to meet our deepest need by laying down his life and sacrificial offering for sinners. And that's not just broadly true. That's true in this context as well. Okay? The main reason that Jesus came to Martha's house, the main reason that Jesus went to anyone's house, was to give himself. Martha assumed that her primary task was to feed him. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? This is John 4.10. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A little further on in that passage down in verse 13, Jesus explains that well water will lead to thirst again. But his point in that passage is that he is offering a kind of water that satisfies to the point of never being thirsty again. See, we have to know who Jesus is and who we are in relation to him in order to get this relationship. What's the primary need? We are called to serve as representatives and ambassadors of Jesus, but first as those who have been served by him. So Martha's complaint in verse uh, 40 is a complaint over a frustrated personal agenda, which, again, we can understand that it seems commendable, right? And her distraction, she, she, it's, 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 it's hard to avoid the conclusion that she's snapping at Jesus, right? Lord, don't you care? Do something. Our sin often reveals that own kind of sniping at Jesus, Have you experienced that? Like the subtext of what we're thinking or saying as in essence is is communicating to Jesus. If you cared, you would have done X, Y, or Z by now. The fact that you haven't leads me to quit, right? So it is the case, friends, that precisely because Jesus does love us, He must not only at times not promote our agendas, but actively oppose them. If we get our one thing wrong, if we get the one thing necessary wrong, the loving act of Jesus will be to oppose our agenda. I teach a class uh, at Biola on the theology of marriage and family. There's a quote I use uh, in the class uh, from Paul Tripp who wrote a book, on marriage a number of years ago. I like it a lot. Uh, bear with me for a slightly lengthy quote. There is gold in here. 
okay? Um, and, 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 and it's just, it, like, it's, it's one application of this point that, that we're making. Right? Our, our passage isn't about marriage per se, but it's one application, okay? So listen to how he talks about God thwarting what we think of as our deepest need in order to expose what is, in fact, our deepest need. So bear with me for just a second. Here's the quote. He says, God's grace purposes to expose and free you from your bondage to you. His grace is meant to bring you to the end of yourself so that you will finally begin to place your identity, your meaning, and purpose, your inner sense of well-being in him. So, and now, so, all right, he's talking about the context of marriage. So, he places you in a comprehensive relationship with another flawed person, and he places that relationship right in the middle of a very broken world. To add to this, he designed circumstances for you that you never would have designed for yourself. Pause there. You resonate with that? All this is meant to bring you to the end of yourself because that is where true righteousness begins. He wants you to give up. He wants you to abandon your dream, editorializing, because yours isn't big enough. Back to the quote. He wants you to face the futility of trying to manipulate the other person into your service. Martha's trying to manipulate Jesus into into serving her agenda here. He knows there is no life to be found in these things. What does this practically mean? Okay, here's the gold. It means the trouble that you face in your marriage, and and by extension, other dimensions of life, the trouble that you face in your marriage is not an evidence of the failure of grace. No, these troubles are grace. They are tools God uses to pry us out, is a big word, I don't even know what this means, of the stultifying confines of the kingdom of self. He's a smart guy. So that we can be free to luxuriate in the big sky glories of the kingdom of God. In other words, whenever we get our one thing wrong, whatever, whatever we latch hold of, it's too small. It's not enough, and he's trying to pry our hands open so we will be satisfied with what we were made for and truly need. And it goes on and on, and it's really good, and I can give you the title of the book after the message if that's useful. Okay, so end of Paul Tripp. Um, in Jesus' response to Martha in verse 41, we, we, we've seen he's patient, he's gentle, even as he is about to affirm Mary's choice. He compassionately addresses her twice. Martha, Martha, I don't think that's condescending. I think he's shepherding. He sees her anxiety and he's trying to shepherd her in the direction of peace. She's not even distracted by bad things, right? She's just overwhelmed, which is leading her to miss the main thing. And we so easily do the same, don't we? Uh, my family and I just got back uh, from uh, traveling across country, uh, family vacation with extended family members on the East Coast. We had a great time. Uh, didn't really have any flight issues. That was nice. I think a lot of people probably did this summer. Uh, in years past, we have taken this trip um, as a road trip. And we've, one of the things that we've tried to do with you know, mixed levels of success, we, we tried to redeem some of that road trip time 
by listening to sermons together, as if like we download a series from different pastors, uh, maybe that we don't ordinarily get an opportunity to hear in, in person, and we'd start the day with a with a, a sermon and then a sermon discussion and a time of prayer and. And some of it was really fruitful. Sometimes it was a struggle. But anyway, one of these years, we, um, we were listening through a sermon series on the Psalms from uh, Pastor, Pastor Tim Keller. And one of his sermons was on Psalm 3. And the sermon was entitled, Praying Our Fears. It's funny the things that stick with you. I mean, this is four or five years ago. And this one, it's just, it's, uh, I'm thankful for it, right? It won't let go. It's really good. I think it's available for free on his website. If you're interested in checking it out, here's what he said um, in that sermon that stuck with me all these many years later. His phrase was this. Anxiety, which Martha is experiencing here, right? Anxiety is smoke. Anxiety is smoke, okay? That's his phrase. And then so the point is that where there's smoke, there's fire. And what he was using that point to make is that, is that the smoke signals our perception that in some way there is something that we treasure that is vulnerable or under threat. Some treasure that we feel we must have feels like it's under threat of burning. And so, and so the smoke of anxiety is going up, right, in our souls. It is, as we mentioned before, that anxiety can be a form of saying, Lord, don't you care? I'm not sure I trust you to do what I find necessary if you let this other treasure burn. Here's the point. Any treasure or agenda outside of the Lord Jesus is vulnerable. It is. It is finite. Even if it is a good, it is a finite good, meaning it won't last. And Jesus knows, and he's shepherding Martha here with the recognition that real security comes from hope that is placed in the only invulnerable treasure. The the smoke of anxiety is going to go up in the soul of our lives when we have laid hold of some other treasure as though it were ultimate, when it is vulnerable. You with me? There is only one such treasure. Now, here's the good news um, about that. When, when you perceive that, that, that smoke of anxiety in, in your life, it can reveal misplaced preoccupations. And that awareness, in turn, can lead to repentance, can't it? Right? In, 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 other, in, other words, in other words, while it isn't necessarily fun to experience, it can lead to repentance and, in that sense, be a mercy and a blessing to us. Uh, perhaps you have a few occasions in your life where you have experienced the good shepherd guiding you through and away from some of your anxieties over lesser treasures. If that's true, I'd encourage you to spend some time later on this afternoon giving thanks to the, right? You're not all the way home, but that is progress. And so spend some time giving thanks to him. If that... uh, leads to something coming to mind as we're speaking about that. So step one, step two, step three, then down in verse 42. The second and sort of climactic portion of Jesus' response uh, and, and affirmation of Mary's choice. So let me reread verse 42 for us. 
Jesus is speaking, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Just to be clear, Jesus is, I don't think he's saying Martha is bad. I don't think he's saying service is bad. I don't think he is saying that because one thing is necessary, nothing else should ever be done. How do we know that? It comes right after the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Where the extension of oneself in Christ-like service to other, right? It, it is appropriate and needs to be done. So, so clearly, love of neighbor is not optional. But specifically Christian love of neighbor is meant to grow out. Remember, inhale, exhale. It's meant to grow out of the intake of the one thing necessary in the same way that the second great commandment follows and grows out of the first. It, right, it, gives, it, give, it gives fuel for and evidence of. In establishing that priority, Jesus says that Mary has chosen the good portion, which is a figurative way of, of describing a different kind of meal than the one that Martha has been working so hard to prepare. Uh, the Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs has a really great sermon on this passage called Mary's Choice, and here's how he summarized this point. He said, Martha thought that Christ came to be feasted when in actuality he came to feast them. In other words, in other words the, meal that, the, the meal that Jesus is making is both better and more needed by us than any other kind. Right? We're going to have lunch at some point after the service today. And, and, and Sibs' point and Jesus' point, I think, is this is better nourishment. This is more necessary. I think Jesus is probably thinking of Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, there man, or Moses says, there man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And, of course, Jesus cites that passage in his ministry when tempted by Satan in the desert to, stir, to turn stones to bread and feed himself. What does Jesus say? Right? He's, not, he's, not say he's not saying bread is bad. He's saying there's more important food. So as Jesus uh, tells Martha, right, when you have, have, have received his word, and by extension, his love as our central good, he goes on to, sell, to tell Martha, when that, when that happens, it will not be taken away. And I think when he says that, I think it's right to conclude that he probably means never ever taken away, right? So we saw Jesus' comments about living water from John 4, it wells up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, when you receive me like that, it builds a bond that cannot be broken. Not now, not today, not this week, not, not ever. It's an unbreakable bond of union with Christ. So we're not just thinking then, right, about, about, about Bible reading or the intake of, of, of communion with Jesus as a duty, but as a kind of, kind of receiving and a kind of embracing of God's love to us in Jesus. That is... I would argue what we were made for. I would also argue that everyone knows it. Everyone aches for that. They wouldn't put it like not, not everyone would, make, would put it that way. But everyone is searching for that. Everyone is motivated by the search for that kind of love and security, even if they don't have the vocabulary to describe that. And friends, when our sin separated us from that, God's Son became human, he lived a perfect life. 
He offered his perfect life on the cross as our substitute, bearing the wrath of God against sin for any who would receive his gift. That is how we are restored to our created purpose of enjoying now and forever the love of God. So it really is true that our greatest need is to build our lives around the centrality of inhaling, right, to use one metaphor, and feasting to use another on the love of Christ communicated to us in his word. His word, as you know, is a multifaceted blessing. You never get over it. You never get beyond it, right? It, ha- it, it, it addresses so many different kinds of needs. Words of tenderness, words of warning, words of invitation, encouragement, admonition, doctrinal demand. It summons to Jesus, summons us to Jesus in first faith. It ushers us along the path of discipleship to Jesus all the way home. And given that need, we should purposefully and strategically build the priority of communion with Jesus, in particular through the reception of his word, into our lives on a regular basis. It's the biggest need we have. We cannot afford to bypass it. Uh, In, uh, I guess, the 90s, um, and maybe it's still trendy today, there were productivity gurus, uh, seven habits of highly effect, you know, I forget what all of them were. But but one of the things productivity gurus talked about was um, just thinking, right, they were just thinking about task management. Um, One of the things that was pretty common for them to say was, as you plan your tasks and your priorities, put the big rocks in first. And it was a silly little illustration, but but, but catchy. So I remember one of these guys... um, you know, he had a table, and he had a, had a big tub on his table, and beside it he had uh, gravel and sand and tennis balls and golf balls and, and volleyballs and basketballs, okay? And to make his point, um, one of the, so he, he started out by putting all the little stuff in, sand, gravel, you know, golf balls, whatever, and then there wasn't room for volleyballs and basketballs. And then he's like, okay, well, let's do this experiment all over again. Took everything out put the big rocks in first, made them the priority, and everything else sort of fit, fit around them. I don't know about you, uh, perhaps, perhaps you have thought at times, in the midst of your responsibilities, I, I, I feel too busy to make a priority for this. And I think, you know, not to use the language of a productivity guru, but I think Jesus is saying, build your life around the centrality of the most urgent, you know, rock, so to speak. There are so many other words that are coming at us all the time with competing agendas. You have cell phones. They never shut off. And they want you to, these other words, want you to build your identity around them. Words of influencers, advertisers, friends, fools. Words of self-promotion. Words of self-pity. Some words are shouted at you. Some words are whispered to you. They never shut off. And these words alone are the words of life. We would be incredibly foolish not to give these the upper hand regularly, routinely. One of my friends, uh, Ken Birding, uh, he's a Bible prophet at Biola as well, and teaches New Testament. He has a fantastic, uh, very readable little book uh, entitled Bible Revival, talking about this very sort of thing. He recommends just... Just think about this by way of proportionality. He recommends that we need more consumption of God's word than we need words and messages received from television and social networking. 
Now, think, just think about that in terms of which words have the upper hand in conforming you to their mold. Who gets more of our time, Jesus or Instagram, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's kind of what he's, what he's talking about. So let me pose two questions for reflection, two questions for reflection. Here's the first one. How are we doing sitting at Jesus' feet? Sitting at his feet, receiving his word, embracing his care. If the answer is, if your answer is pretty good, then I say amen, press on. If your answer is not so great, then let's consider for a moment maybe what's holding some of us back. Perhaps it could be busyness, even ministry-like busyness. Say, for example, the kind we see in the labors of Martha in our passage. It can be tough, right? When, the, when you give the first fruits of your time to God, just like when you give the first fruits of your finances, you have to trust him for all of the other time, just like you have to trust him for all of the other dollars. Not easy. God is being kind and saying, give me what's first and best because it's best for you. Maybe that involves learning to say no to some otherwise good thing so that we can consistently say yes to what is most necessary. Maybe some of you are go-getters, type A. You like to do it all. You have a hard time saying no. You know, it's a humbling reminder when we have to say no to otherwise good things. It's, 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 it's a humbling but important reminder that we're not God. We, 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 we don't complete all the tasks on our to-do list. We weren't, because we're not God, we weren't meant to do it all. And acknowledging that and recognizing that is very important. So perhaps for some of you, it would be worth considering where you can cut back in some areas in order to prioritize what is most necessary in other areas, right? Uh, Maybe, maybe uh, some have uh, good intentions to receive the feasting of Christ in his word and find that when we sit down with those very good intentions they are undermined by wandering thoughts or distractions, right? The buzzer on the phone, the, 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 the notifications on the phone comes off or goes on. Couple of, some, some of these ideas are super practical. Number one, when the time comes to feast on the word, put the phone on do not disturb. Maybe put it in the other room if you have to. Almost anything else on planet Earth can wait. I can think of very few things for which it would justifiably interrupt that. Uh, sometimes, or if you're if you're distraction happy, um, you know, maybe keep a notepad. And scra- when the distraction comes to mind, scratch it down, dispatch it so it's out of your mind, and come back to the word. Maybe beyond that, if you face distractibility, you could pray to the Lord when your distractions so, so you're you know you're 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 giving yourself to communion with the Lord and his word and you can't stop thinking about the laundry seems silly but it's kind of part of our experience sometimes isn't it Lord I can't stop thinking about the laundry but attending to your word is more necessary please fix my it's a, it's a, okay it's an opportunity to entrust even small things to him uh, perhaps, perhaps some of you would find it helpful to try writing 
some of your reflections or prayers. Some, for some people, that gives, that gives expanded focus. Uh, using body postures, as we mentioned earlier, to direct the heart. Maybe sitting at a table rather than wallowing in bed when trying to read, read, read the word. Um, kneeling in prayer. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe some uh, of us here have the sense that, you know what? I've sort, of, I've, I've sort of got the handle on the big idea of the gospel, and I don't really need to revisit the rest of it that often. If that's you, keep in mind G, the, the, the likely appeal that Jesus is making to Deuteronomy 8.3 here, uh, lives by the word of God, man lives by the word of God, not by bread alone. How would, how would our health fare? If we thought to ourselves, you know what, I hydrated pretty good a couple of days ago. I don't really see the need to consume any more water. Right? Okay. In the, in the same way that that doesn't work, neither does it work to say, yeah, I got the big idea. I can kind of cut myself off from this. We bypass this priority at our peril, friends, thinking we're okay and trying to coast till we find out we're not okay. <clears throat> I'm sure other practical thoughts could come to mind, and, and, and hopefully you'll have an opportunity to share those with one another on your way out in the parking lot, over lunch with family. Question two, where to start? <clears throat> so if this is, if, if getting off the ground here is new to you, where can you start? How can we press on? A couple of quick comments. Number one, uh, you can start by asking the Spirit to open our eyes to the treasure that God's Word actually is. As we come to understand the magnitude of this treasure, remember, the only word God owes any of us is a word of judgment. And, and so when he heaps word upon word upon word upon word, redemption and mercy and forgiveness and communion and shepherding us, all, right? this, this is a remarkable treasure. So let me, get, let me just give you two, two passages you might want to write down and reflect on later. There are hordes of these, but here's two. Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 40. Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 to 40. And Psalm 19, 7 through 11. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. There's many, many more, but, but maybe give some attention to, to how those describe the treasure of God's word to us. And then as another tool, another tool perhaps as you go to spend your time in the word with the Lord... If, you, if, if, you, if, you, if you've got uh, some patterns that have been very fruitful for you, uh, what I'm about to say, I don't, I don't have a verse for this, okay? So I, I can't bind the conscience and say, do it this way. I'm not trying to say that. But if you're looking for something that's useful, here's three prompts. Ask, A-S-K, ask, linger, share. Ask, linger, share. Here's how it works. Ask some questions of the passage that you're working on. Here's a few simple ones. What does, this show, what does this passage show me about you, Lord? Okay, here's another one. What does this passage show me about me? What do I learn about myself? My need in this passage or how my need has been met. Here's another question. What would a response of unbelief to this passage look like? That's important to know, isn't it? It's important to know what the unbelieving response would look like so that by God's grace I might steer from it. Companion to that, what would a believing response look like? 
maybe in, in our case in particular, that would involve some of the things we do with what we identify as our great need. So that's ask, linger, right? We're not, we, we, we are not, we are here for, for the information, but not just for facts and data. The one thing necessary is the communion that comes with Christ through his word. So linger means lingering over the passage with a view to at least one thing that would prompt our worship to the Lord. Okay? Ask some questions. Linger in praise. Share. How you share, you know, you could send a text. You could call a friend. You could share it with somebody that you see in the workplace. It's what Hebrews 3 talks about when it admonishes us to stir one another up by way of reminder on a daily basis so that the deceitfulness of sin may not encroach upon our hearts. Ask, linger, share. Uh, Okay. So maybe you're just starting out on this journey. If that's true, just take the next step. Just take the next faithful step. We don't want to assume, of course, that that, that one baby step is enough or that it's all we'll ever need. But if that's the next step to take, then take it. You can spend your whole lives and never exhaust the richness of the word of Christ. The more you consume it, the more you'll come to understand your need for it. So friends, let Jesus feast you in his word this week. He has told us that is the one thing necessary. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a feast. Would you awaken our eyes and the taste buds of our souls to recognize the truth of that and to be satisfied in the enjoyment of it today and as we move on into this week with our families, relationships, and places of work and ongoing ministry in the life of this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.